You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. We're starting a new sermon series this week called In the Trenches. And um, let me just tell you this. This is not the trenches. What we do on Sunday morning is really not the trenches. Faith in the real world is not what we experience in this setting. It's that... It's the messy, complex, confusing struggle that takes place when we try to live it out, when we try to put it practice, when the bombs of opposition and temptation and doubt are exploding all around us. That's the trench warfare. You know, in times of war, you have the, the, those that have the generals and the politicians and the commanders that have the high responsibility of making the big decisions of whether to go to war, how to go to war, who's going to go to war. And, and then you have the people that are really doing the war out in the trenches. Um, in business, you have the boardroom executives, and then you have the people that are out there, the laborers, the manufacturers, the salespeople. In, in education, you have the administrators, and you have those that are the teachers in the classroom. And in and, 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 um, and, and, uh, sports, you have the front office. <clears throat> then you have the players on the field. So in church, this is really not the trenches. The trenches are when we get out there, and it's a Monday, and it'd be a whole lot easier for you to compromise your faith and your morals because your job would be a whole lot easier and you'd get a big reward for it. That's the trenches. The trenches are, you know, Saturday night when you're out with all your friends and they're pulling you in a direction that you know you shouldn't go. That's the trenches right there. It's easy to believe on a Sunday morning, but when you're out in the trenches, it's hard to put that belief into practice. So the focus of the next few weeks, we're going to look into some of the trenches that uh, we read about in, in the epistles that are more lesser-known epistles. Let me put it that way. There's some of the, the writings in the New Testament that we rarely preach from and you probably rarely read from. Um, but they are written to specific people in specific situations who are there in the trenches and they're dealing with very specific issues. So so we're going to be taking a look at Jude today, and the whole message there is to obey whenever you're contending for the faith, whenever a different message, uh, a twisting of the gospel is, is presented to you. We're talking about John 3, or 3 John, the little epistle of 3 John, uh, probably next week. We're talking about being hospitable, selflessly demonstrating God's warm welcome whenever, by putting other people first, when you'd rather not. First John, sacrificial love, the letter of Philemon, which is all about forgiveness. So we're going to be dealing with some of these trench, war, trench warfare issues that we read about in Scripture. So today, let's begin with Jude, and I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, turn to Jude. If you don't know where Jude is, it's real simple to find. It's right before Revelation. So the last book of the Bible is Revelation. The book right before that is the book of Jude. And it's a very small book. It's one chapter. It's 25 verses. And today we're going to take a look at that and um, see what it has to say to us. So God, as we do this, as we turn to Jude right now, I pray, I pray that this isn't just going to be ink on paper. It's not just going to be words on a screen that these words that were written that you used to make a difference in people's lives back then, I pray that they'll make a difference in our lives today. Amen. 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 Let's begin with asking the question, who's Jude? It's an obvious question. Who's Jude? Well, he begins by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Well, 
two, two options, I think, that we can, general options, that who this Jude might be. One, there, Jude is another form of the word Judas. We know it wasn't Judas Iscariot. There was a second Judas who was an apostle, uh, one of those lesser-known apostles that, that we read about in the calling of the apostles, another Judas. Uh, but, uh, but it's probably not that Judas. It's probably Judas who was one of Jesus' half-brothers. And he refers to himself as the brother of James here. Matthew chapter 13, 55, Mark 6, 33, um, it talks about Jesus' brothers. Now, some traditions in Christianity say that that's Jesus' cousins. Either way, um, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem uh, in the early first century or so. And then uh, this Jude is saying, I'm the brother of James, who we know, both in those verses that I referred to, could have been a cousin or half-brother of Jesus. And so, but he doesn't refer to himself as a brother of Jesus. He doesn't refer to himself as a cousin of Jesus. He, you know, he just, I'm, I'm just Jude. I'm the, I'm the brother of James. So both of them were more well-known than him. You know, it's kind of tough when you have some well-known siblings, right? <laughs> kind of hard, especially when, you know, one of them has spoke the world into existence. LAUGHTER you know, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. You know, that guy can do anything. And I'm just Jude, you know. <laughs> How do you keep up with that? But, but it's Jude, and he writes really from a, the heart of a pastor. He's writing to people who were followers of Christ, but, but people had come into their community, and they had twisted the message of God's grace into a license for sin. People were teaching that that God's grace is simply a get-out-of-jail card that you can pull out whenever you want, and it justifies you doing whatever you feel like doing. It's a perversion of the gospel. It wasn't, Jude's not the only one that wrote about that. Um, Galatians wrote about that. Others wrote about that. But but, uh, let's begin here, verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who've been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So you can see there, he wants their best. He's writing to them out of, a, out of a real pastor's heart. And he begins by reminding them of their position in Christ. You know, they're called by God. They're beloved of God. They're kept for Jesus Christ. It's all what God has done for them and reminding them of where they, who they were in Christ. And from the place of a pastor's heart, he writes to them, And he says to them, I want you to find God's mercy. I want you to have God's peace. And I want you to extend God's love. And I love that. Mercy, peace, and love. And what a great formula that is for our own prayer time. God, I need your mercy. Fill me with your peace. Let me be an extension of your love to others. If you're wondering, you know, those three dimensions of our spirituality, I think, are a good rule of thumb for all of us to use when we talk about, you know, who we are in Christ. God, I need your mercy to fill me with your peace so that I can extend your love to others. That's a good prayer that I encourage everybody to, to let that just begin to flow off of your lips. So Jude intended to write one thing to these people, but then he changed his mind because of the severity of the issue. Notice what he says here. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. In other words, I just, I wanted to give you a message that lays the foundation of who we believe, why we believe, what we believe, so that it might, you know, shore up your understanding of faith. 
But he goes on, he says, but I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Notice the trench warfare language there. Contend for the faith that the Lord has once for all entrusted to all his people. So he says that this, this faith that we have has been passed down. It's a historical faith. It, it was given to us from others. And so I want you to honor the history that you have so that when somebody comes to you and tells you that they heard from God, that they had some special dream that they want to give you this divine insight, this word of God, this word of wisdom, knowledge, this special information that they receive from God, you need to weigh that with the historical message that has been passed down from Christ and the apostles to you. So he's concerned that they're in the trenches in this cultural moment that they were in, that they would allow themselves to be deterred from following Jesus and sucked into this message of cheap grace. It's a distortion of the gospel. And so he uses that language of contending for the faith. He wants them to fight for it. He wants them to reject popular opinions that was pulling them away. Because it's in the trenches that we must courageously pursue the invitation to grace. Don't ever stray from God's grace, but understand that God's grace is what frees you from sin. It doesn't give you a license to sin. And there's a big difference there. Let you in your trenches always contend to draw closer to God and don't let the temptations and the bombs that are going off around you pull you, drive you away from God. Because you're either doing one or the other. We don't, we don't have a static relationship with God. We human beings, by nature, were created as worshipers and everybody's worshiping something. I don't care who you are. Christian, Muslim, Hindu, uh, Buddhist, atheist, we all are worshiping something, and what that means is we all give our devotion away from something else. We all expect something from outside of us to make us to meet our needs. And any other God, rather than the God who created the universe, the God who demonstrated his sacrificial love for us, any other God is a small G. And when we devote ourselves to the small G gods in the world, then it always brings us down. It doesn't bring us up. But if you worship something bigger than you, it elevates you. It, 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 it helps you. So, so he's warning them and he's appealing them to be faithful to the gospel message that they had heard. And then he goes into this, you know, he starts off real soft to the people that he cares about. And then knowing that the people that were distorting the gospel, who were preaching a, a form of cheap grace that was a license to sin, were going to hear this message, he gets serious. He goes into this stern diatribe when he says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped into, uh, long ago have secretly slipped among you. They are, they are ungodly people who pervert the gospel of grace of our Lord God into a license for immorality and they deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign Lord. Again, I was going to write you a nice little letter, but because these people that I've heard about and what I see happening in you, it's really getting under my skin. So how do you really feel about these people, Jude? Though you already know all this, he writes, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels didn't keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness 
bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And he's just getting warmed up here, folks. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disrupting or disputing with the, the devil about the body of Moses, didn't himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasonable, unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Talk about a hellfire brimstone message right there. It goes on. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy angels, holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers. They're fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Wow. Aren't you glad you don't have Jude as your pastor? (laughs) Amen. Amen. I just want you to know, his opinion is not for the people that believed the gospel. They were for the people that were distorting the gospel. It was a righteous anger toward people that were ending up causing the people that he loved as writing as a shepherd for his sheep, guarding the sheep. He's wanting to protect them from their own destruction brought upon them by these false teachers who were leading them down a path that was going to lead them to demise. So he feels pretty strongly about that. His motive is love. And he's really attacking the people that were causing the destruction. And he uses six examples from the Old Testament. He uses two examples from extra-biblical writings uh, that, that we have, apocryphal writings that the people would have been familiar with. And so what he's saying is God has given us this historic faith and he's passed it down through Jesus to the apostles and it's forwarded, he's forwarded it to you. So we don't get to pick and choose. We really... We really need to weigh what people are saying by what the scriptures have to say. And we need to understand it in light of what, what has been tried and true down through the years. So let's take a quick look at these six examples from the Old Testament that he used. First of all, he talks about 
Israel when they were cast. We just talked about this the last week. We talked about how God delivered the people out of Egypt. Uh, you know, he, he, he used Moses to set the people free from their bondage and slavery. And they got into the wilderness and God provided manna and quail and, and imparted his truth and wisdom onto them. Gave them a new identity, a new purpose, a new way of worshiping and knowing about God. And, and promised them that they could go into this land that he had promised to their patriarchs, to their ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they get right at the edge of the wilderness and the border of the promised land and they send out the spies and they come back and there's all kinds of great things in this land that they had scouted out and uh, Caleb and Joshua were saying let's go do it but the other 10 spies were saying no no it's going to be too hard too hard the God that spread the Red Sea the God who destroyed the superpower Egypt and delivered us from their hard hand of oppression. The God who provided quail and manna in the wilderness. Oh, it's just too hard for us now to take this land that he promised us. The point is, they believed that God was big enough to save them, but they didn't trust God enough to obey him. believe God is big enough to forgive me of my sins, but I don't believe he's good enough that I need to obey what he says. Because his commands, they're a little hard. You know, I, doing what Jesus said, that takes a little bit of a sacrifice. Standing up for something where everybody else is bowing down to, you know, I just don't want to be the only one. That's too hard. That's, I can't. You know, God doesn't want me to have to, you know, be different because I'm a follower. He wants me to be happy. So, so, so this is what was happening to them. It's as if God said to them, you believe I'm strong enough to do all these things, but you don't believe in my command to take the land. You don't believe in my command. You won't obey when I'm saying, just step over the river. Just go. I'll go with you. You don't believe in my command to, to, to fight the battle, to get in the trenches, to get messy and to get dirty, that I'm not going to help you in the trenches. Do you really think I'm not going to be able to do that? And that's what they were. And so their unbelief in God's goodness said to them, I don't trust God enough to obey him. So that's the example from Israel. And then he talks about the angels. Is he talking about Genesis 6? These, these people called the Nephilim that were sort of angels that came to earth and married with humans. That's a really weird kind of passage. Is that who he's talking about? Is he talking about the fallen angels, the beginning of creation? I don't know. But the point is that they don't, these, these heavenly beings did not have enough respect for God, so they lowered themselves to earth. They degraded themselves. And Jude saying to the people, you know, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been given your freedom, and now look at what you're doing. You're using that freedom to lower yourself back into your former way of life. Like a dog returning to its vomit, the, prophet said, the, the proverb says, you know, you, 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 you get better and then you go back to it. He uses the, the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, like these notorious towns of old, these teachers are telling the people that, you know, they can, they can do whatever feels right. They can abuse people for their own selfish, lustful pleasures. Whatever makes you feel good, do it. And, and that's the thing about sexual immorality. It desensitizes you to God's spirit and it objectifies other people for your own selfish pleasure. He, he uses the example of Cain. Cain in Genesis 4. 
Cain, who was envious of his brother because his brother seemed to be accepted by God because he offered a pleasing sacrifice and Cain didn't, uh, didn't offer the same pleasing sacrifice. So he was envious of his brother. He ended up killing his brother. And, and that's what envy does. Envy, maybe you may not kill somebody literally, but envy says, you know, if I can't feel good about myself, then I'm not going to let you feel good about yourself either. Envy says, I wish I had what you had. I I hate that I don't have it and you have it, so I'm going to destroy you so you can enjoy what you have. And and, and so he uses that example of Cain. And then he uses the example of Balaam. And Balaam, Numbers 22, tells a a very uh, uh, great story, humorous story to a degree in the Old Testament. I do believe God has a sense of humor. And this is a story about... While the people were wandering in the wilderness, I mean, the Israelites were over a million strong, a huge force of people that if they, if they joined forces and went to war, if you were one of the, the people groups in the land and you were like a smaller size of people group, you're going to be intimidated by these people wandering. And so the king of Moab, Balak, was a little worried that these Israelites who had been delivered from Egypt would attack him. So what he decided to do, he says, you know what, I'm going to put a curse on them. I'm going to find a prophet and I'm going to give him some money so that he'll curse God's people so that they won't be able to come to battle against me. Or even if they did, they wouldn't succeed. That was what he believed. So he went after this prophet called Balaam and Balaam said, no, no, I can't curse God's people. And he said, well, will you do it for this much? No, no, no. Will you do it for this much? Well, let me think. Will you do it for this much? Okay. Everybody has their price. Don't think that you don't. Everybody can be bought off in the right moment, in the right temptation, in the right opportunity comes to you. You can be bought off. And that's what happened with Balaam. Balak paid him off. And so he was on his way to go to the king of Moab to make this prophecy, to put a curse on God's people. And he's riding a donkey. And while they're riding on the way, the donkey stops in the middle of the road because the donkey sees this angel of the Lord with a sword and fire standing before him. But Balaam doesn't see it. The prophet, the man of God, doesn't see the angel where the donkey does. So Balaam gets mad at the donkey, and he starts beating the donkey, and the donkey's getting beaten. He's getting mad, and, the, and, and he beats him again, and the donkey doesn't move, and he gets beating the donkey again. And finally, the angel of the Lord gives the donkey the ability to speak. And so the donkey speaks to Balaam, and he says, Quit beating me! I'm just trying to save your life. Can't you see this angel right in front of us? I don't want you to go forward because God's going to destroy you. You're about to do something wrong. Quit beating me. And the, and the whole idea there is that he was willing to be bought off for his, his morals because of greed. Greed. The wise prophet, because of his own greed, became dumber than the donkey that he was riding on. And he couldn't see God. And then one last example he uses is Korah. Korah was a very popular leader among the people in those times of the wilderness. And, and, and because he was popular, because a lot of people following him, and he looked at Moses, and Moses wasn't a perfect leader, never claimed to be. But Korah thought that he could have been. And so Korah decided to get a bunch of uh, others who were grumbling about Moses' leadership because, frankly, life was a little tough out in the wilderness. So Korah rose up and he led this rebellion against Moses and he basically said, it's all in number 16, he said, why should we listen to you, Moses? I mean, we know you're holy, but God loves us too. We have our own thoughts about God. Why, why do we need to listen to you, Moses? And, and Moses, 
didn't claim to be better than other people. In fact, the Bible says he was, he was more humble than anybody else. But Moses knew that the words that he was speaking to the people were not from himself. They were God's words. And he was the messenger of God. And he knew that he wasn't just preaching his own agenda. He was preaching what he had heard. And he knew from God who met with him in the tent. And, and so he's like, Korah, you're on dangerous ground here. Korah, you really are being, you know. And so Korah was basically saying, there's no spiritual authority. Nobody speaks for God. We're all on equal ground. So, you know, let the people judge Moses between you and me who they want to follow. And, uh, and unfortunately, God judged. And the ground opened up and swallowed up Korah and all the people that were rebelling. And so the point there is when we become our own authority, when we make up our own understanding of what's right and wrong and we don't receive, uh, uh, we don't adhere uh, to God's words uh, as been revealed to us through Scripture, um, then, then we, we despise spiritual authority, we rebel against spiritual authority, we're in a dangerous place. Now, we all know, and we've all been around long enough, that there are spiritual leaders that abuse that authority. And we should weigh what spiritual leaders say. And I encourage you to weigh what I say with Scripture, please. Um, but I'm doing my best to preach from God's Word. But I know every week people walk out and they'll say, well, I don't know if I believe that or not. Weigh it with God's Scripture. But, but if it's true, don't despise it. Let God use me, anybody, that is helping you to get closer to God. So here's the, here's the, the summary of all that is the fruit of twisting God's grace into a license for sin ends up with things like disbelief in God's goodness, degrading oneself, sexual immorality, envy, not telling the truth because of greed and despising spiritual authority. Those are the kinds of things that, that um, Jude was fearful of and warning and concerned about for these people. And that's why his words were so harsh. And, and we think, well, that doesn't happen in our community. It doesn't happen in our culture. Well, come on. I mean, it's the sense that I, I can believe that God saved me, but I, I really can't trust God with my singleness. Or I really can't believe that, that God, you know, though he saved me from sin, I really don't trust God with my addiction. Or, you know, God, I believe you called me to be a child of God, but I but I know I keep lowering myself to do whatever I want to do. Uh, it's the sense that you can follow your own sexual appetites without suffering consequences, that you give in to sin when it comes to you because it's easier than fighting. And, and, and what you trust in terms of security or comfort or pleasure, whatever that be, financially or otherwise, when that becomes more important to you than what God says, then, then, then you're, you're in a dangerous spot. Or anyone who would confront you or, or, or anybody that teaches something that conflicts with your way of thinking, you know, well, who do they think they are? They are no, you know, they're no more important to me. I, I don't need to listen to them. And man, America, that's, we're founded on that fierce independence. And so we have such a individualized Christianity in America. So Jude is worried. And that's his, the heart of Jude is to, to warn. He's, 
he, he's worried, he's concerned. He says, I don't want your apathy toward God to move you into a place of judgment from God. I want you to contend. I want you to fight in the trenches. I want you to fight to obey Christ when you're in those moments. So what can help us to contend for the faith? He goes on here. He goes on here and he says, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and they don't have the spirit. So the first way of contending for the faith is really our, our devotion. It is, this, it, is, it is devoting ourselves to God. And we do that by remembering that there will be those that will pull us away from our devotion to God. Don't be surprised by that. When people tell you that obeying God is stupid, say, well, I knew that was going to happen. Of course, you're not going to agree with me because it doesn't match what you believe. So, so don't be surprised when, when you're in the trenches and that guy says to you, hey, it's okay to go home with me. Don't, don't be impressed by the new theology he's going to lay on you that will justify why he wants you to go home with him. Don't, don't be impressed. Well, you're so smart. I didn't know that that was okay. Oh, man, you're a brilliant theologian. I guarantee you if we want to do something bad enough, we can make up our theology and rationalize it any way, shape, or form. And people do that all the time. People do that all the time. You know, that's been going on since the garden. Eve was uh, listening to the twisted theology of the serpent, and we do that. We do that. Don't say, oh, I never heard that before. You're so smart. What a new teaching. So devotion is about remembering what you've been, what you've received to know is right and wrong. Don't forget. It's also about building each other up. He says, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Build yourselves up. He, he build, how, was it, how do we build ourselves up? Well, what, do, what would it be like if we flipped the script on the other, the warnings from the Old Testament? In other words, rather than disbelieving that God's commands are good for us, what if we believed that his commands were good? What if God, who was good enough to go to the cross for you when you were still sinning, the God who saved you from eternal damnation and also saved you from your current hell that you were living in. What if that God also wants your best? What do you think? God might deliver you from that sin and then tell you, oh, it's okay to go back into that? Do you not think that his commands for you are good? What if you believe that God's commands are good and God said, well, you know, you're supposed to love people like this. You're supposed to stop doing these things. Can you trust that God's commands are good for you? That's how you devote, build yourself up, by trusting that God's commands are good. They're for our benefit and not for our suffering and pain. What if you stood in your position, rather than the angels lowering themselves, what if you said, you know, I am that new person that Christ made me. 
Rather than saying, I'm, you know, I'm just no good. I'm just a lousy person. I can't do that. I'm not good enough for Christ. What if instead you said, I am who Christ made me to be. You've gone from being rebellious toward God to being redeemed. You've gone from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. You've gone from being a slave to being a son or a daughter. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your primary identity now is a son and a daughter of God. If you stood up in those shoes, if you put on those clothes, would it not help you in your devotion to Christ rather than see yourself as the old person that you've been redeemed from? Every time you choose to lower yourself to sin and pursue lesser things, you're walking out of the position that God had placed you in. And so we contend for the faith by standing up and saying, I'm not that old person any longer. I am not that person any longer. I am the person Christ has redeemed me to be. Rather than give in to sexual immorality, it says flee sexual immorality, the Bible says. Now that word flee, now let's, what does that mean? Well, it means just, you know, ponder for a while. Hang out there for a little bit. <laughs> Think about it. Let me weigh this decision. Let me think of all the options. No, 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 no. Flee says, leave. Get up. Walk out. Go away. Move out. You get out of this place. Most people that are stuck in sexual sin have a sense of apathy toward God. And their apathy toward God is really a form of rebellion. They don't care what God has to say because they care about what makes them feel good in the moment. And so in the trenches, we need to flee sexual immorality. We need to resist the temptation to sin. God, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, says that no temptation has taken us, but what is common to humanity. So when that comes, God provides a way of escape. And we don't look for the way of escape. We look for the way to justify it. And here's the truth. Temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. We're all tempted. That's not the sin. The sin is when you follow that temptation and you feed that temptation. Practice generosity rather than like Balaam and buying, being bought off or using lying to be able to get something to greed. The way to defeat greed is to be generous. Practice generosity. You will be amazed at what that will do to break the bondage of greed that you have. In every area of your life, greed is mentioned in Scripture far more than any other sins. Far more than sexual sin is the sin of greed mentioned in the Bible. And that's not to say one's worse than the other. It's just that it's mentioned so much because that has its grip on so many of us. How do we learn generosity? We learn it from Jesus who said, though he was rich, he became poor so that you who were poor can be made rich. That's the generosity that we've all received. And then the last one is respect spiritual authority, respect the scriptures, respect what you've learned and heard from those who have told you in the past. All of those things help you to build up your faith. They help you to stand in your faith. They help you to, to contend and to fight in the trenches when the bombs of temptation and, and, and opposition and all of that's going all around you. When you're tempted to go the other way, those are the things that will help you contend for your faith and move toward God, not away from God. But he goes on to say in this area of devotion and, 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 and build yourself up and pray in the Spirit. Now, 
all of us believe that we don't pray enough, right? When it comes to prayer, prayer is such a conundrum because prayer is the one thing that should come easiest to us and has never been intended to be a place of judgment for us, and yet we make it a place of self-condemnation. Prayer is really what flows out of a person who wants to get close to God. Prayer is talking to the one who you're devoted to. You know, what if, what if I felt, oh man, you know, I'm devoted to my wife, but I really don't want to talk to her. Do I really have to talk to her? Man, I better spend an hour today talking to her or I won't be, I better do this or she's not going to, if I don't, you know, if my relationship to my wife was based on fear or duty, what kind of relationship is that? And yet we treat prayer with God as something that is only duty or we do it out of fear or obligation. I communicate to my wife because I love her. We have fun together. We enjoy time spent with each other. That's why we have, and why not have that devotion to God? Prayer is simply a humble person who's saying, God, I need your mercy. God, fill me with your peace. Help me to be an extension of your love to others. And when you build yourself up in your devotion by praying to God, it's a gift that God gives you to be close to him. Prayerlessness is simply a sign of our own pride and our own independence. So prayer helps me to believe. It helps me to stand. It helps me to flee. It helps me to resist. It helps me to be generous. It helps me to to respect. But if I don't think I need God, then I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking to God. So out of a sense of humility and dependency, we talk. We want to go close. And then it says, keep yourself in God's love. And that's what the whole gospel is about. It's about God's love for you that's first. It's about you remaining in the story of God's love for you. And then we're going to wrap up. Notice what he says. So devotion is one of the ways to build ourselves up. The other is to be in community. Notice what he says in verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So, so if I'm in community with people and I am struggling with my doubts or somebody else is struggling with my doubts, I don't want people to say, oh, you shouldn't doubt. Just believe. I don't think God ever wants us to have blind faith. I think doubt is a part of faith, and I've talked about that in the past. But when people come with a lot of doubts, when sin is beating them up, what he says is extend mercy to them. Extend mercy. And, and when somebody is, is about to be destroyed, you need to reach down and grab them by the back of their neck and snatch them from the fire. If you love them enough, you're going to rescue them from their own destruction. And I hope I'm a part of a community of people, and I hope I have people in my life who if I fall off the tracks and the train is coming, they're not going to sit there and take pictures. They're going to reach down and pull me up. And, and if you love people, that's what you're going to do for them. You're not going to stand by and idly let them. I want people that are going to show mercy mixed with fear. It's like help the person that's caught in a sin, but always beware the fact that you too, except for the grace of God, and very easily could be right where they're at. So extend mercy mixed with a deep sense of reverence that 
you too could be where they are. But that's where community helps us to build ourselves up in the faith. I hope, you know, when we gather around the throne that we can go to those people and say to them, you know what, I look back on my life and I see that time that I was so full of doubts and you were merciful to me and you let me ask questions and you let me wrestle with my doubts and you helped me to work through that. Thank you for doing that. Or when I was going down a road of destruction, you grabbed me by the back of the neck and you pulled me back on the right road. I'm thankful for people that will do that in my life. Or, or whenever I am, uh, you know, help and, and, and caught in a sin, I need somebody to show mercy mixed with fear. And then the last thing, and he ends with this final benediction, and that's the idea of worship. And it's basically taking all of we have and looking to God and saying, God, it's yours. The chief end of man is to love God by enjoying him forever, worshiping God. Notice what it says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. You know what's really cool about this? This was a hellfire brimstone message, but it was all about the grace of God. Because he doesn't say, you better not sin or you're going to lose your salvation. Or he doesn't say, it's up to you to get yourself saved. He begins and he ends with the mercy and the grace of God. And he says, it's the mercy and the grace of God that we need to hold on to so that we can contend for the faith. It's God who's going to save you. It's God who's going to keep you. It's God who snatches you. It's God who holds you. And what you need to do is live in that story. Don't live in the other story. Our contending for the faith is to say, God, it's your story, and I want to live that story. I don't want to walk away and live the story of the ways of this world that's all about me, that's all about my own temporary sinful desires. I want to be bigger, better. I need you, God. Help me to do that. So this morning, if God's going to be the one that's going to keep you from stumbling and present you before God and make you faultless, do you have God in your life? Have you received Jesus as your leader, your Lord? Have you accepted God's forgiveness for your mistakes and for your sin? And frankly, we all are sinners. We're all made of the same dirt. We'll all return to that same dirt. And we need Jesus to redeem us from the dirt of our lives and clean us. And it's only what he can do. But you can't do it on your own. Do you have Jesus in your life? If you've never done that, today's the day to do it. Or if you've been going down that path and today you just felt the Holy Spirit grabbing you by the back of your neck, maybe it's time to return back to Jesus. Maybe it's time to return back. And so this story is about a story of God's love who Christ went to the cross for you through his great mercy and his love and his sacrifice and the power of his resurrection and his ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit would create a relationship with you that's better and closer than any other relationship. And you need to contend to stay in that relationship. 
You need to fight for that more than you fight for your own marriage. You need to fight for that more than you fight for your friendships. You need to fight for that more than you fight for your friends and your family. You need to fight content, not to be saved, but to stay in that place of God's love. So as your pastor, I invite you, let the mercy of God come inside, fill you with God's peace, enable you to extend God's love. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're here this morning and you're just saying, wow, I've not understood the gospel like that before, and today I want to turn to God. You can do that. You can do that by faith. Saying, God, I don't want to be that that person that goes my own way. I need you. Maybe you've never done that before and it'd be the first time. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and your life has just been a mess and you, you need to be snatched back. You need to return back. You have an opportunity today to say, Jesus, I want to come back to you. And he's saying, I'm still here. I'm still here. And I want your best. Would you just pray to him right now and say something? Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, I'm coming back to you. Jesus, take me. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. But I need you to change my heart. Fill me with your mercy and with your peace that I might have peace with you, knowing that I'm loved and accepted from and forgiven by God. Let that change the way I see myself. Let it change the way I see others. Let it, let it change the way I behave. Lift me up out of the mire and the clay and the mud and the trenches, God, and help me to see that you've put me in a better place and help me to live that story out. And when I'm in the trenches and I'm being pulled back away, help me to remember Help me to stay true. I need you, Jesus. Because I know it's for my good. I know it's for others' good. And it's all for your glory. I need you, Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.